0: Here we are again, another installment of the Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club. I'm Chad Dundas, alongside Ben Foulkes. This installment, we're going to be talking about The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt. Ben, kind of a a stripped-down crew here to talk about The Sisters Brothers. We made a lot of big promises in the lead-up to this that both of our wives would be here. Yeah. As it turns out, it's just you and me.
1: Yeah. Turns out our wives have actual jobs. Uh, where they, that they actually have to do, and cannot always take an hour or so out of their day to just talk on a podcast, which, frankly, sounds like it sucks. Sounds like are having real jobs, real pain in the ass. Well, I
0: don't envy them at all.
1: No. Also, can we talk about how, at least in the introduction, you adopt a different tone for the book club
0: episodes? It's a little more public radio. It's a different product. It is a different product. That's true. It's not the co-main event podcast. It's, it's kind it's- of smooth
1: It's not, you know, we're not yelling at you about human cockfighting. We're here to talk to you about high-minded things like literature and film. And uh, the tone, I think, gets that point across.
0: I would say as our genre's premier high-end producers of digital content, we owe it to our fans to offer a diverse menu of programming. And so here with the book club... We just try to put a different spin on it. That's all.
1: So we both talk about real-life sporting violence and
0: fictional violence. Both kinds of violence. Blanket spoiler warning, like we always do here on the book club, uh, this might seem self-explanatory, but we're going to be talking about the Sisters Brothers today. If you have not read the book and you are looking forward to having an organic experience with your readings, you may want to put this on pause until... uh, Until you're done with the book because we are going to be talking about plot points and we are going to be doing so in an unfettered manner. Yeah,
1: we will not allow anything to fetter us on this one.
0: Well, Ben, we got, as usual, a lot of good responses from the co-main event uh, podcast listening audience out there. People were a little bit lukewarm, some of them, on The Sisters Brothers. We got a lot of positive responses but a lot of uh, additional responses of people who didn't totally think that the book lived up to the hype. I don't know. Did, did we oversell it? I was just going to say, I don't know if you think that that's a, a product of us having spent w- nearly six years maybe overselling the book.
1: I don't know. I feel like it was kind of oversold to me when I first picked it up, maybe by you. Maybe you were the one who was like, you got to read this book, The Sisters Brothers. It's amazing. It's amazing. But I picked it up and I remember loving it right away. Uh, although I will admit to – I mean naturally you go through and you read a book through the second time. You get some different stuff. You pick up on different stuff. You're not reading for plot necessarily the same way you are the first time where you're just trying to figure out what's happening. Uh, I remember the first time I read it being like I can't believe how funny this book is for an actual you know serious work of literature. It's quite funny throughout. I still felt it was funny reading it this time. I also felt it was sadder than I remembered it being the second time through.
0: Yeah, I picked up on a lot of stuff uh, my second time through the book that – I, I Either it didn't hit me the first time through or I just didn't remember it since there were several years in between readings. Uh, and I'm looking forward to talking about all of that as we get into this discussion. For starters, I thought it might be helpful for us to frame this discussion a little bit by talking about what kind of book The Sisters Brothers is. Because, you know, it's a Western. And I think as you get a little bit deeper into the the library of the author Patrick DeWitt you discover that one of the things that he really likes to do is sort of like play with form and play with a genre. The book that he wrote right after the sisters brothers under major Domo minor. Yes. Uh, is basically a fairy tale, like a Gothic fairy tale. And the sisters brothers obviously is a Western. So right. Patrick DeWitt is kind of doing one of his favorite things where he goes into a well established genre and explodes it a little bit with uh, various aspects of things that he does in his writing uh, it's also a picaresque, which is a fancy literary word that basically means a story about a couple of ruffians having adventures. Yeah, wandering around. Well, in the first half, and this is one of the things that I caught on the second
1: time reading it, that it is almost mathematically cut in half that the first half doesn't really worry itself with the plot too much. They tell you in the very beginning, okay, here's here's the mission. We're going after this guy, Herman Kermit Warm. The Dandy Morris has staked him out in San Francisco, and we are to travel from Oregon City to San Francisco to kill him. And they have you know, a little bit of a discussion in the very beginning about what they're doing, why they're doing it, uh, various doubts and misgivings they may have. And then they set out, and it's just a fun journey where we learn a little bit about them as they go and about their relationship between the two brothers, Eli, the, the narrator, and his older brother, Charlie, sisters. And mainly we're just kind of wandering through having a good time and having a lot of adventures that really don't amount to anything in the grand scheme of the plot. And then I think it's like page 170 or something where they finally reach San Francisco and the plot kicks in. And the book is like 320-something pages long. It's almost exactly first half fun adventures, having a good time, second half focused on the, getting through the plot.
0: Yeah, I guess now my follow-up question before we start getting into listener responses to the book. Why do you like The Sisters Brothers? Because I will say maybe the thing that I appreciate about it most, and again, just like we talked about a little bit on the last book club when we discussed Fletch, it is possible that I am coming at this book more as a writer than I am as a reader. Because the thing that I like more the most about The Sisters Brothers – is how weird it is. It is really, really weird. And frankly, there's a lot of stuff in this book that I think we will talk about piece by piece as we go through that shouldn't work. And frankly, wouldn't work if Patrick DeWitt had not written a slam-bang novel. Uh, And so there's a lot of aspects of this book that you wouldn't expect from a traditional Western. I think the world building is extraordinary in that he puts you in what is simultaneously like a really familiar world, but at the same time, a totally new, uh, immersive experience. I think that the character building is extraordinary again, kind of in the same vein. He's definitely playing with types here. Most of the characters in this book are types, but he saves them from being cliches, uh, by giving them all a little bit of, uh, unique sparkle, and in fact, in a book that has a sprawling cast of supporting characters, almost every single one of them is given his or her own uniqueness.
1: Right. It it doesn't feel like any stock characters. Right. It's
0: something that I really appreciate about it. Uh, And he also, in many ways, elevates the genre by adding a lot of magic in a weird way. There's a lot of magical realism in this book, which I, uh, if you ask me, as a blanket statement, do you like that? I would say, hell no. Yeah,
1: and I, I usually side the exact same way. I would not tell you that I'm a big fan of magical realism. And yet, it's really in all of his books. that I've, I've read all of them except for his first one, uh, Abolutions,
0: I right. believe it's called. Which I think is the only one – well, I don't know much about French Exit, which is his newest book. But a- Abolutions one. or whatever it's called – is a departure from the rest, is my understanding.
1: Well, and did not do very well. From I read a bunch of interviews with Patrick DeWitt, and he was talking about th- that book really taught him the way that even if it's well-received by the critics who actually read it, a book can just disappear. You can spend a lot of time working on a novel, and if it doesn't get the readers, it just vanishes like it never existed. And his subsequent novels, because The Sisters Brothers was a breakout hit for him, the rest of them have been more widely read and there's an element of magical realism in all of it. the French exit one has arguably more than all of the rest of them. And yet it does not really feel strange for me, maybe just because he does it so well and the way it's presented uh, a couple of things I wanted to point out about reading interviews with him to kind of get a sense of what he thinks is for one point. Uh, I read an interview from Granta where he is asked, does he think of it as a Western his uh, Patrick DeWitt's reply At a certain point, I began to think of it as a Western for people who don't read Westerns. And that's proven to be true. But it's also been generously received by people who do read them. And by and large, these folks aren't finding anything amiss. Well, they know better than I do. If it's a straight Western for them, it's a straight Western for me too. Uh, But you're right that he does seem to like to kind of choose different genres and write in those. One thing that when I was kind of asking myself, what do I enjoy so much about this? I, I think it accomplishes the task of having a really a multidimensional narrator who is just kind of fun to be around and who is living a life that's completely different from anything you know and yet also manages to sprinkle in enough of the universal human experience, even when at other times some of his thinking seems really strange to you, that it, it at times you, you feel genuinely touched. And I, I highlighted a couple points of this. For instance, when he... Kind of falls in like this brief – has this crush on the woman who is running this hotel that they stay at mm-hmm. uh, and really quickly starts to regard her as an object of affection. And he he tries to kind of talk to her. It doesn't go super well the first time. She admits to a preference for more slender men uh, and he is described several points by several people as being a little huskier. And then he's wandering on the street and he uh, he sees his reflection – I could not help myself i saw my bulky person in the windows of the passing storefronts and wondered when will that man there find himself to be loved which is really not where you're what you're expecting to hear from a 19th century western hitman and it works it works because the the character and the thing what i said earlier about it being a sadder book than i remembered the the feeling basically of unrequited love between him and his brother where and there's a moment later where uh, they're riding out of San Francisco. He's getting on his horse, Tub, which by that point is all kinds of fucked up, has lost its eye. And he sees his brother sitting there on his fine horse, you know, just kind of like sighing at his annoying younger brother and him realizing he has never loved me the way
0: I love him. Yeah. And it's genuinely sad. Yeah, we're going to get into a discussion about Tub in a little bit because <laughs> Tub, uh, while being – one of the most sympathetic characters in the entire book tub is a horse, by the way, uh, tub also plays like an interesting role in the book, which I do want to talk about just to build on what you were saying. And then I want to read to open things up. This response that we got from Andrew Millington's mom, uh, well, everything that you say is exactly right, that like this book is surprisingly touching and Patrick DeWitt explores these characters who are essentially hired gunmen, road agents, you might say, uh, in really surprising and uh, and I find touching ways. But at the same time, he does it in a way that is – that keeps it within the bounds of them both sort of being sociopaths. Yes, right? Which is one of the interesting things about this book. Now I'm going to read – this is the longest listener – email that I'm going to read, and, but I think it's worth it because it's from uh, Andrew Millington's mom, and you know that it's from a co-main event mom because it comes from an AOL email address. Nice. She, I believe she's a former school teacher, so here's, the, uh, here's what she writes. I think it's a good setup uh, for what we're going to talk about today. Normally, I prefer reading books that take off uh, to a rather quick start making page turns a must right from the beginning. This absolutely was not the case with The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt. Set against the California Gold Rush, this is a dark Western comedy. It tells the tale of Eli and Charlie's sisters, siblings who are hired to kill Herman Kermit Warm and to steal his chemical formula, which will enhance the aforementioned gold rushing and make it far more efficient and profitable as well. Various and sundry neer wells cross the brothers' paths along the way, and as expected, things ed- end badly for said crossers. Dotted throughout are unexpected moments of romance, quote-unquote romance, uh, some of which are purchased, some given freely, if not grudgingly. To say that the novel starts slowly is an understatement. I wanted to give up on the read many times, but as soon as I was committed to converting the book into a hard-bound paperweight, DeWitt came through uh, with some amazing slow-burn humor, and a vignette or two that made me somehow want more. Tub, the horse, became quite the sympathetic character. I couldn't turn a blind eye. I get it. Du-dun-tush. Yeah, you see what she did yep. there. Uh, the violence on several fronts is both expected and surprising, explicit in detail and almost laughable in its Wild West frankness. If the gunslingers truly were this deadpan funny, I'm unclear as to why they choose to shoot one another. I applaud DeWitt's development of our two lead characters, and I found myself unable to ignore the impact of a brutally, brutally painful childhood on their, on their subsequent quote-unquote professional choices. Just as I was determined to pin the vast majority of the evil doings on Charlie, younger brother Eli's words and feelings awakened me to his own dark side. Which sister is the most twisted is a debate for the ages. I get it, twisted sister. Nice. Are they simply unable to shake the bloody dust off their past, or do they make up for their lack of compassion and empathy with a great need and uh, selfishness unparalleled? In the end, I was mildly disappointed at, the, at a rather contrived climax, which I'll not disclose to the potential readers. That's okay, Andrew Millington's mom, because we're going to. I will say the book plants the seed for some fairly enjoyable philosophical analysis, uh, if not for discussions of amazing literary quality. Now, let me pin Andrew Millington's response on the end of this because then we'll be off and running. Andrew Millington, longtime listener of the podcast, friend of the show, writes, To me, the most intriguing part of this story was its study of sociopathy. It almost reminds me of something Ben said when profiling the Diaz brothers. Charlie, parenthetically, Nick, does not give one solitary fuck. Eli, parenthetically, Nate, will at least lend you a fuck if you promise to have it back by the weekend. (laughs) To me, Eli is the definition of a high-functioning sociopath. He lacks empathy, but is still sensitive... Uh, to criticism and desires the approval of Charlie and the women he meets along the journey. He talks to dying people a couple times throughout the story because that's what an empathetic person would do. He acts like he feels bad about the plight of Tub because people are supposed to feel bad about an animal in that state. It weirdly makes Charlie seem more honorable in a way because he doesn't attempt to put on airs about his connection or his lack thereof with the people he comes across in his life. There's one thing I'm conflicted about. Do you think Charlie actually did have sex with the hotel woman or was he deceiving and manipulating Eli to maintain the upper hand in their relationship?
1: No, I think he totally boned the hotel lady. Yeah, me too. I don't think it's in Charlie's nature to come up with a story just to ease what he regards as his brother's suffering.
0: All right. Let's start here. I referred earlier to the sisters brothers being sociopaths. And obviously that comes out here in Andrew Millington's response. Do you agree with Andrew Millington's analysis here, Ben, that Eli sisters is only trying to pretend like he has feelings? No,
1: I think that that's one thing that the, the first person narration really gives us throughout is that he has feelings more feelings than he is even expressing outwardly to his brother. And I think though, that, it's not necessarily an either or it's not like either he has empathy or he doesn't because at times he definitely does. I mean, the, it feels a little bit contrived whenever you have a character where you're trying to show he's really a good guy because he's kind to animals. You know, that's a a quick thing you can do. And we see it on page one, basically where he's talking about the problem with the horses and saying that, you know, every time he feels that tub is thinking to himself, sad life, sad life, and the chance that he has to basically turn Tub into uh, a hunk of meat and take this much better horse that he just found that threw off its rider and broke his neck in the middle of the night. And it's a far superior horse. He's been complaining about the horse the whole time. He has the opportunity now to get rid of Tub, get a better horse, and he doesn't. He keeps Tub around. I think that you, know, you could argue that that's a little bit heavy-handed in trying to show how he is an empathetic person. But then there are other times where definitely you can tell that there's a piece missing from him. And I'll, I will read one now from page 154. This is when they are trying to leave Mayfield in a hurry. And uh, they are cornered by the fur trapper guys who are doing Mayfield's bidding and who want to kill them for taking the pelt and, and keeping the money. And then they they do their trick, their quick draw trick where he pretends he's going to count it off and then just shoots everybody in the head really quickly. Um, Charlie and I were set to leave when we heard a boot scrape in the loft above us. The hand, meaning the stable hand, a boy, who worked in the stable, had not left, but hidden away to witness the fight. Sadly for him, he had also witnessed our numbers trick, and we climbed the ladder to find him. This took some time, as there were many tall towers of stacked hay bales in the loft, which made for excellent covering. Come out, boy, I called. We are all through here, and we promise not to hurt you. A pause, and we heard a scurrying in the far corner. I fired at the sound, but the bales swallowed the bullet. Another pause, and more scurrying. Charlie said, Boy, come out here. We're going to kill you, and there is no chance for escape. Let's be sensible about it. Boo-hoo-hoo, said the hand. You're only wasting our time, and we have no more time to waste. Boo-hoo-hoo. That is a description of them about to kill a child whose only crime was witnessing basically what they regard as a trade secret that they want to keep secret. They're going to kill a child just because they're scared. He might say, here's how the sisters' brothers managed to win this shootout. And he's pretty blase about it. He, we see him feel bad about a lot of other things, about the even the idea of killing Herman Kermit Worm for crime no greater than his own in, uh, innovation. And yet we don't see really him feel bad at all about killing the stable boy just who happened to see them.
0: Can I add in, we, I talked at the beginning about the world building in this novel, and this is just like one small piece of the puzzle, but it's one of the... The brilliant things about Patrick DeWitt is that he manages to tell you stuff about this world. For instance, that one of the Sisters Brothers' proprietary trade secrets is that they tell their opponent that they're going to count to three and draw their guns. But instead of counting to three, they just shoot them after Eli counts to one. Yeah,
1: they're basically a heel pro wrestling tag team.
0: Which is like both funny and it also – like subtly tells – it subtly draws a line between the world that we live in where obviously that's a hilarious and completely ridiculous trick and the Sisters (laughs) Brothers' Old West world, where like no one has ever heard of that before. And it's such a secret that the Sisters Brothers are going to kill this kid so that that trick doesn't get out.
1: Right. Well, you know, and one thing when we're talking about how you make these protagonists likable and it seems like people – Several people mentioned this in their responses to us. Uh, Patrick DeWitt is asked about it in several interviews that I've read. Like, you know, are they – do you regard them as likable protagonists? Do you, do you worry about making likable characters? And I think what he does here with a language is, it is able to give you an insight into the character. He's able to speak more frankly about exactly what he's feeling. And in a language you couldn't get away with, and he – He mentions this in an interview with uh, The Ringer. I think this this came out recently after the movie of The Sisters Brothers. Uh, What what Patrick DeWitt says about that is, if you're writing in an antique language, you can say these very poetic, sweeping, floral things, and it's not cloying. That sort of Baroque language lends itself to these declarations, so you can get away with highly stylized turns of phrase. It's a lot harder to do that when you're writing in a contemporary tone of voice. So I did feel restricted because I like being grand and poetic and ridiculous, so and I think he's talking here about the more recent novel. So to temper that, I felt like I had to be more disciplined. Uh, and I think you really see that in the Sisters Brothers, that Eli can say these things that are – and at one point even he's told, I believe, by a Hermit Kermit Warm, "You got a bit of the poet in you, which has – what's been making him so, such a likable narrator for so long is the way he's able to phrase things and tell you about his world, you just kind of enjoy hearing them – have encounters with strange people along the road.
0: Yeah, and I think that while Charlie sisters is a stone-cold sociopathic killer, it it does seem like Eli, who followed his older brother into the killing profession, uh, has a little bit of a softer heart, and obviously that's one of the things that makes him more likable. Do you
1: recall the first part in this book where we get the first hint of their backstory about where, what they, where they came from and how they got to be the way they got to be?
0: Well, it does. They do. The book does eventually come across with the whole story, right? That, uh, that Charlie killed their dad. Their dad was like an abusive maniac. Pretty early on, there's an exchange between them, right? Where they talk about how they, they, they have their father's blood in them or something. And that's what makes them bad men. Uh, but it takes a long time before we figure out before we hear the find the whole story, right?
1: The that story about here's how uh, you know Charlie killed the father. Uh, it comes about when Charlie is just like he tries at one point earlier on to say like you know I was thinking about how you got your freckles and Eli is just oh, kind of right, like yeah. hey not now like I'm not interested in having I'm mad at you I'm not interested in having this conversation with you. Page 164 is where they finally tell it. Again, pretty much halfway through the book is when you first finally hear about what their backstory is. And I think, you know, Andrew Millington's mom says that she normally likes a book that starts a little faster. I felt like this did start fast in terms of action, people doing things. Getting a sense of character. Yeah. It just didn't start fast in terms of plot. Right. Plot takes a long time to kick in.
0: No, I agree with you. It, it does start a little bit more quietly than you would expect from like a formulaic Western. Uh, but the thing – one of the things that I find extraordinary about the book and again back to the character building and world building, you – as in the first two scenes, the first scene – where Charlie's sitting outside the Commodore's house or Eli, I'm sorry, sitting outside the Commodore's house, waiting for Charlie to come out and tell him about the job. Again, a quieter moment than you would expect from a Western. And then the second scene where they go to the bar or the restaurant to talk about it. As soon as you get to through that second scene where they're arguing about who is going to be the lead man and the way that the dialogue works, you know, almost everything about those two characters. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, amazing as a, uh, an establishing shot, basically, of the novel. Uh, And so I'm going to read this from Tracy Dickinson because it's sort of in the same vein. She writes, I'll admit that I went into this book club somewhat hesitantly as Westerns aren't typically my thing, but this was a Western without just being a Western. I appreciated the fact that a lot of the focus was on the relationship between Eli and Charlie as well as Eli wanting to better himself even though this was the only life he seems to have known. I felt that there was a degree of hero worship that Eli had towards Charlie, which I'm assuming was based on their childhood and the upbringing they had. He seems to be stuck at a somewhat juvenile point in his life, i.e. the fascination with tooth powder, as well as resorting to extreme violence if he loses his temper, like a child having a temper tantrum. But there was a lot more complexity to his character that you could see with his sentimentality with Tubb, as well as his generosity toward the accountant and his final moments with Warm. All in all, I wouldn't have seen myself pulling for a hired killer, but I found myself disregarding the horrible things that Eli had done and hoping that he was going to be able to turn his life around the way he was hoping to. Should I be seeking therapy or did you feel Something similar in regards to Eli No obviously like that's kind of the point Of Eli's character that's those are all Of the things that you are supposed to feel About him
1: right well and I think though She makes a good point that the Desire to improve himself Seems to be like One of the things that is hinging On or that gets you To start to feel I guess I want you to succeed in this goal Of yeah. getting out of this life And Him gradually coming to the realization where he has this epiphany, right? Where he kind of realizes, you know, I've never really been into this. This was never really who I felt like I was. And it was always just that I had an uncontrollable temper. And one of the things that brought out my temper was the thought that anybody would try to hurt my brother. And he manipulated that. He... Was used to this pattern where they work together where, you know, the older brother whips you up into a fury and then directs that fury in the direction he wants it to go to help, you know, whatever the job is. And him kind of realizing that very late in the book, really realizing this, you know, that, hey, he's just been controlling me this whole time. And I'm not really into it and I really want to be done. And then kind of going back and forth with him being like, I want to be done. And then when he realizes Charlie's saying like, okay, you can be done and I'll keep going. He doesn't really want to be left out that way. Right. Which and he another, struggles with that.
0: Which is another scene that is hilariously rendered on the page because uh, Charlie's sisters is basically like, okay, fine, you're out. I'll get someone else to watch my back and it'll be Sanchez. But first he says Rex and right. he replies,
1: Rex is a talking dog.
0: Right. <laughs> So it's like it sort of like brilliantly and with a lot of humor underscores the that Eli both like cares about his brother and can't leave him with with a talking dog to watch his back uh, and immediately feels like jealous of the idea that these other guys are going to join his brother to carry on. What is essentially the family business up to that point
1: well, in that same scene that 's where they go, they ask for the most expensive place to dine in San Francisco, and a little later we should talk about the rendering of San Francisco gold rush era, San Francisco here because it is brilliant, but they 're sitting there having that nice meal and having the conversation about what are we going to do because they had earlier when they realized, hey, maybe warm didn 't actually steal anything from the commodore they they read morris 's diary, they start to believe. The Commodore just wants to kill him because Worm won't hand over his formula for finding gold. And then they both, you know, Eli more so, but he's kind of surprised. And I think the reader is surprised to hear Charlie say, I don't really like the idea of of killing a man just because he was clever enough to come up with this invention. And Eli's like, oh, I'm so relieved to hear you say that. But then when they sit down to dinner and he's kind of talking about, okay, what are we going to do? And he's like, what do you mean what are we going to do? He's like, well, are we going to kill him or are we not going to kill him? And Charlie, almost like good-naturedly, is depicted as kind of eating his steak and like kind of chuckling and shaking his head going, I really don't know. You know, couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you if we're going to murder this man or not. Uh, I guess we'll figure it out.
0: Yeah, and I think we'll talk about the movie a little bit more maybe toward the end of this episode. But I would offer that I think that's the most successful scene in the movie where they have that dinner and they get into a fight and Charlie ends up hitting or Eli ends up hitting Charlie. Uh, They don't hit each other in the book. Right. And then in the movie, in the next scene in the movie, Charlie says, you hit me in public. Like that's a a huge problem for these guys. Who's um, a big part of their business is based on their reputations.
1: You have it backwards. I think Charlie hits Eli. Eli's mad about it. Says, you hit me in public and he says, okay, go ahead and hit me and then we'll be even. And And that part's in the trailer too. You know, uh, I think when I was reflecting on the movie uh the you know and there's a little bit of a departure and everything The one scene for me that I was kind of glad that was in the movie was the very first scene because in this one they only make passing reference to the last job right. what happened on the last job? Our horses got burned uh I think Eli injured his leg on the last job, but we you know we don't really hear too much about what went on during the last job, but the first scene of the movie depicts them. Carrying out the last job, where it's basically just like you know, killing some guys that are up in a house, looking for one specific guy that they are supposed to be killing, but that one shows you very quickly them working together as a team, and you can see that when bullets are flying and they're actually they're professionals at it, they've done this before, and they can carry out this this uh, job even if it's dangerous and murderous.
0: Right, and it's a more traditional way to start a Western movie with a shootout than the way the book starts. All right, here's James Guildford. Why did the author kill off poor Tubb? Seriously, I nearly deleted the book right then and there. Heartbreaking.
1: Well, you've got to kill off Tubb.
0: It is heartbreaking that Tubb dies. But the death of Tubb and the quote-unquote character of Tubb brings up two aspects of this book that I wanted to, to talk about. Number one, that there are some things in this book that are borderline heavy-handed and wouldn't work if the book was not as good as Patrick DeWitt had made it. And one of the things that is would ordinarily be pretty heavy-handed is that the sisters' brothers' horses are like Symbols of their relationship because, as you said, when the book starts, their old horses have just died. they burned up, uh, immolated, as it says yes. in the book. Uh, the
1: eyeballs popping.
0: Charlie gets a terrific new horse that is, you know, as good – Nimble. His name is even Nimble. The horse's name is Nimble. It's as good an outlaw's horse as you could possibly want. Eli's horse is named Tub. Tub. And embodies all of the things that that name implies. So you have this relationship where – Charlie is clearly the dominant sister's brother. Eli, who is himself a bit more of a tub, uh, rides this horse named Tub who is unfit for his job. And because of that, he and Eli bond and Eli is unable – like Eli soldiers on with Tub far longer than it makes any sense for him to to soldier on with this unfit horse.
1: And there's a moment uh, where they're crossing the pass into California and uh, before they come upon – one of at least two different crazy old prospector characters, which is just a good trope. I don't mind. That, that's the closest you come to a stock character is the, the prospector who's just kind of gone crazy out in the the woods for too long. And I kind of don't mind it because it's just fun. But uh page one hundred and two, they're going over a difficult pass to get into California, and he writes, "Despite Tub's eye wound, he never so much as stumbled, and I felt for the first time that we knew and understood each other. I sensed in him a desire to improve himself, which perhaps was whimsy or wishful thinking on my part, but such are the musings of the traveling man." Again, you see the baroque language that you can get away with when you're writing like from another time, but also. You know, him projecting onto his horse this desire at, for self-improvement. And even when he he leaves the horse with the guy in San Francisco and he's like, hey, take a look at the eye, will you? You know, the guy who ends up eventually extracting the wounded eye. And that guy, when he comes back the next morning, the guy's like, you know, I'll tell you this, something about this horse. He does kind of grow on you. He's, he's There's something about him you like, don't you? Like a personality aspect of this horse that you like. Uh, But you're right that it would feel heavy-handed where it's like, okay, everybody has a horse that is really a reflection of their personality in this relationship. And the the reason I think he gets away with some of these things that are heavy-handed, not just the horse stuff but other stuff, is because the book itself is so fun. Just on a page-to-page, sentence-to-sentence, the the writing is really strong, but it's not overly literary. It's not trying to impress you with how good a writer he is. It it moves along at a a steady pace and – There are just so many fun interactions that they have and it's – there's so much fun banter. It's enjoyable the entire time and so you don't get caught up. If it were all heavy stuff dripping with sentimentality, you'd get sick of it really quickly but it's super fun.
0: Yeah, The other aspect of the book that I think Tub naturally brings up that I wanted to talk about because, again, it underscores how successful the book is – uh, both as a novel and as an exercise is that there's so much stuff that happens in this book that ultimately comes to nothing, yes. which again, if the book was not good would, be, would make it terrible. It was be, it would be stuff that you just flatly couldn't get away with, but there's so many sort of little plot twists and detours. Whereas a reader, when you are encountering them, you think, okay, uh, this is going to be important. I should, I should remember this for later. And then ultimately none of it comes to fruition. And tub is one of those characters because he's set up as such a sad sack in the beginning of the book that you're like, well, Tub will obviously find redemption in some way. And he does, you know, uh, I guess you could make the case to save Eli from the bear at one point. Like he at least distracts the bear enough that Eli is able to, Like uh, find his gun and shoot the bear. Eli would have
1: been safe if he was in the house. The the bear came to eat the horses.
0: But you think, like, okay, well, Tub is set up as as such a a sad sack. Like, eventually Tub is going to do something heroic to, like, justify Eli's faith in him. No, he just dies. He loses his eye. He gets sick. He soldiers through all this pain. And then he falls down a hill and dies. Well,
1: (laughs) in one of the interviews I read, he's kind of asked about this, about all the secondary characters who basically show up and then it doesn't really amount to anything. And, you know, the the weeping man, the man who is walking his horse along and just crying and is inconsolable and nobody can really communicate with him. We see him once and we see him again. The boy who has been stranded like in the wagon train. He's like a teenage boy. Everybody keeps hitting him on the head. You know, they leave him. He shows back up again. Uh, but then it all comes to nothing in the end. And there are many things like that. And he's asked in an interview um, about – Like, are you doing that on purpose? Is that something where you thought this was going to go somewhere and it didn't, and you left it off? His answer, this is just basic tinkering trial and error stuff. A hundred pages after the Weeping Man's initial appearance, I thought, what's he been doing? So I brought him back, and then again toward the end. Same thing with the hit on the head boy. I liked him and wanted to see him one more time. Sometimes these things work, and sometimes they don't. I like that the Weeping Man returns for no real reason. He does nothing. We learn nothing from him. He's just a semi-humorous vaudevillian prop wandering into someone else's scene.
0: And to me, the best and biggest example in the book is when uh, Eli has to go to the dentist. And in the end, they steal the dentist's numbing medicine, which you can imagine for a couple of guys who are both in the business of enduring pain and causing pain, that this numbing medicine that they get from the dentist could be extremely handy. And when they take it from him, you think, aha.
1: Well, it even says a a wise man could make use of this. Right.
0: You're like, aha. At some point, the numbing medicine is going to be a big deal. And then – Nope, not really. They use it on Tub to make him so that his eye doesn't hurt quite as bad, but that's it.
1: No, you know what? You said this before when we were talking about this book, and I kept an acute eye out for it on the reread. It does appear more than that um, because they use it on the horse. Uh, they also, though, when they are trying to ingratiate themselves to Warham and Morris, who have had just had this shootout with these... Uh, scary prospectors who wanted to buy their wine and they wouldn't let them. And so the sisters brothers helped them out by killing the guys just as they are shooting back at warm and Morris and Morris is hurt in the arm. And they say, we have some medicine that can help you. Okay. And then when, and here major spoiler alert, when Morris and warm fall into the, the chemical drenched spot in the river and they're both dying of all over body burns and it's horrifically painful uh, Eli makes mentions uh, mention of using the last of the numbing medicine uh, on them to try to ease their suffering.
0: Sure, but there's no major plot point that turns right. on the numbing powder, which if this was a more formulaic book, I think would happen. You right. would expect it to be like that they get in some kind of jam where eventually they're like, aha, this numbing powder is the very thing that saves us. And it, that just doesn't happen.
1: Um. Yeah, well, sure. Uh, let's read this question from Jill DiGiorgio Yeah, because I, I this will get into the question about some of the fantastical elements. She writes, was Eli blessed by the old, quote-unquote, witch when he walked through the threshold of the door? Now, obviously, the scene she's referring to there, uh, Eli still suffering from having his teeth extracted by a very humorously down-on-his-luck dentist, another interesting character they come across. They, they want to stop for the night. He's not at 100%. They see this weird old woman alone in a shack. Charlie says, hey, it's warm in here. She's going to let us stay. Eli is creeped out by her, wants to keep on. Uh, Charlie says, you know, you, you're in no shape to keep on. I, I like it here. It's warm. She's got a fire. Let's stay here. They stay there. The old woman is really creepy. Uh, at one point, Charlie awakens or has a dream where he sees the old woman pouring a black wicket, black liquid into Charlie's mouth uh, and then he he wakes up to scream and realizes he was dreaming and the old woman is making this bead pile uh, in the corner, staying up all night doing it. And then when they wake up in the morning, she's gone and a weird little tchotchke kind of thing she has made of beads is hanging over the doorway. Now, they immediately jump to it being like, okay, this is a witch's curse thing. Can't walk under it. They don't even have a discussion about whether or not that is the case. They are immediately accepting that, okay, this woman w- has some kind of evil magical powers she left this thing here to curse us when we walked out therefore we cannot walk under it and they they easily accept this as fact uh and then of course charlie goes out the window eli feels he's too big to fit out the window charlie's going to come back with some tools to cut a bigger space going through all this trouble to avoid walking under this thing which he walks under anyway in order to save his horse from being attacked by a bear yeah uh and then later in the intermission he encounters a creepy little girl in mayfield who tells him basically that he is a protected man that instead of being cursed by walking under it he now has the protection of it are we meant to take stuff like this literally did you did you see it and think okay well every time this appears i'm supposed to believe this is all really happening and for the world of the novel he is protected
0: yeah and just to tag onto this martin galfin writes would you like to explain to me what might be the message hidden in the intermissions? I assume they didn't actually happen. Uh, I have to admit when I first read the novel years ago, I don't necessarily know that it occurred to me that Charlie had been, or that Eli had been blessed and Charlie had been cursed perhaps by this witch. And maybe some of them like magical elements of the book didn't strike me as hard as they did until the second time I read it. But the second time through, I kind of came to the opinion that, aside from the the sheer comedy and the, the character development and the sort of, like, uh, chances that the plot takes, the thing, one of the primary things that elevates the Sisters Brothers above a normal Western is this sort of magical element that exists throughout the book. And it never really explicitly takes it on, but it is certainly implied that the sisters brothers both believe in magic and that something happens in that witch's cabin that ultimately dooms Charlie and at least for a time protects Eli. Uh, And I think that it's more powerful that it's not explicitly uh, explained by the novel. It's just one of the things about it that you just kind of have to wonder about. Uh, And I think that it's, it's super effective and like, there's, there's multiple magical elements to this book. There's like the, uh, there's the witch, there's the, the red bear, that is kind of like a a mystical object, which is ultimately uh, killed and and its pelt is, is valued by uh, one of the characters in the book. There is like, they go to the dive bar while they're searching for warm. And there's a woman who does the trick, with a bead where the guy, or with the ribbon where the guy's trying to find it in her hands. I
1: mean, she's basically doing three card monte, Right, and
0: he can never find it. Uh, but it's implied that, like, it's more than that. that, like, sh- that you thought so? That it's, like, not necessarily sleight of hand that there's something kind of above and beyond that going on. I thought because it was if it was just sleight of hand, the guy would fucking find it eventually. Uh, and then, the, obviously, the most magical thing is Herman Kermit Warm's chemical formula that makes gold glow in the dark and therefore be much easier to extract from the river.
1: Okay, I wondered about that. I was you know, I did a little minimal research into but like if you're trying to research like chemicals used during the California Gold Rush, you cannot really find uh anything that tells you exactly whether this was based on something real or not. Um because it it seems at one point you're like, okay, this is a fictional invention and yet you know, based on real like chemical kind of mining techniques, I guess, they, and also uh, I like how it proves too caustic for their skin. Like, yes, you can get the gold. It comes at a price. Like, that that all seems like genius stuff to me. And I didn't really – that to me does not seem so much like magic uh, as the witch stuff and the question of, like, what's going on with the intermission stuff. And as far as are we supposed to assume the intermission stuff is not real, I don't know. In the other intermission, they get beat up by the unemployed uh, sex workers of Mayfield. And have all their guns and money and stuff taken, which then proves to be you know, a problem they got to work around after that. So I think you got to say that the stuff that happens in the intermission really happens. Because remember when he goes to yeah. kill Mayfield, he doesn't have a gun. He only has his knife because his gun was taken when they all the women beat him up.
0: And again, because there's this like magical thread throughout the book, uh, in the first intermission, Eli – has this like thing that you would ordinarily discount as a dream where he, he meets this like creepy little girl and there's a dead dog in a yard. And near the end of it, he figures out that the little girl killed the dog. Uh, because there's that magical thread, the sisters brothers like leaves you with this as the reader, the sisters brothers leaves you with this question of like, okay, was that real? Which is awesome. Like, and I'm glad that again, it's not necessarily explicitly explained Two two things I'm going to read. First from Dash and Oz, the Jungle Brothers, as they uh, uh, describe themselves, and then from John Lee. Dash and Oz write, do you think it's possible to truly value the comforts and relationships of home without embarking on a risky adventure, like Eli and Charlie sisters? Then John Lee writes, as I was reading the book, it kept reminding me of Bojack Horseman. Specifically, Eli reminded me of Bojack. With his funny, insightful, and often sad commentaries on life and being a man like Bojack, Eli wanted to be a little bit better, whether it was dieting or giving gold dust to the little boy, but ultimately, like Bojack, he was resigned to the fact that no matter where he goes, there he is. I was super amused by the whole toothbrush thing and the other, quote, modern-day problems, like Eli trying to order a low-carb meal set in the Old West, And, and Patrick DeWitt is quite the writer. I kept expecting to know what was going to happen next with the various crushes of Eli or the gold illuminating chemicals, and was pleasantly surprised every time by how Dewitt kept it interesting and avoided the easy cliches. As much of a jerk as Charlie was, I couldn't help feel sad for him when he lost his hand. But I'm glad that he and Eli got to reject the Thomas Wolfe's. got to reject Thomas Wolfe's idea and finally go home again. Okay, now
1: we've had a, a few people talk about the ending of the book and. Nobody seems super jazzed about it. Some people dislike it more than others. Um, the end where they, they go back and basically are going to move back in with their mother and repair that old relationship.
0: What do you make of that as an ending? Um, I much prefer the first half of The Sisters Brothers to the second half uh, for whatever reason – I like the picaresque nature of them just kind of bumbling around having these adventures. It's funner. It's funnier. Would it's you have more, read
1: 320 pages of just that?
0: It's more pleasurable than than the second half, but you do like have to shape the book into some kind of coherent plot. So I understand that, uh, that there is a necessity for them to have this through line that they're – the whole time they're kind of on the heels of Morris and Warren <coughs> and that that story eventually does have to have a resolution – Uh, the, the very end of the sisters brothers, which is almost like a coda really, where they go back home and they, uh, they like make peace with their mother. And it seems like they are going to live out their days living at her home. Uh, I'm kind of torn on it. On one, on one hand, it seems too easy to me, like explicitly happy as an ending. Uh, like we have these characters that shouldn't be beloved, but by the end they sort of are. And Patrick DeWitt offers this sort of, uh, Dream like ending for them, where they just get to you know go live with their mom, on the other hand, I didn't expect that that would happen like i didn't despite the fact that you know the the that these the nature of home comes up throughout the book, and we know that their mom is somewhere like living living on her own, as you're going through the book. And it's so kind of wonderfully weird the whole time. I think as a reader, you can't help but wonder how is this going to end? What is going to happen? Are these guys going to die? Are they going to find redemption, et cetera? I don't know that I ever once upon the first reading of this book was like, oh, they'll clearly just go home and live with their mom. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's true. Um, and the – you know, Charlie losing his hand, it is a sad thing in a way. It also – uh takes away from him the one thing that he kind of liked about himself basically was his ability to to kill people efficiently and quickly. Um, And there's this moment where they – when they do go home – first of all, there's a moment when the hand and a bit of the arm is amputated and Eli picks it up. Like it drops – the guy is sawing it. He tries to put like a little – uh, receptacle underneath so that it falls into that, but it misses and lands on the floor. Eli picks it up and holds it for a second, looking at it and has a moment where he thinks to himself, this is something holding my brother's hand and his arm. in my hand is something I never would have done in you while know, weld the hand and arm were still attached to him. Like, which is a, an odd observation, yeah. uh, but a weirdly touching one. And then they go home uh, and they're talking to their mother and she sees Charlie kind of walk in. He wants to take a bath. She tells him, Uh, go ahead. As he stood in the doorway to face me, his expression was guileless and straight, and I thought, there's not the slightest bit of fight left in him. After he had gone, Mother said, he looks different. He needs a rest. No, she tapped her chest and shook her head. When I explained he had lost his shooting hand, she said, I hope the two of you don't expect me to lament that. Uh, And if you want to talk about, like, the, the change the characters have undergone with their journey... That's a, a major one that it does seem like Charlie is going to be a very different man yeah. now and a kind of a sadder version of the man he was. Right. Because uh, he was not ready to make a moral transformation. It was kind of forced upon him by having his ability to uh, inflict pain be taken away from him.
0: Yeah. And at the risk of making a terrible pun, like speaking of being heavy handed in the novel, like the <laughs> one – it's a weird parallel with uh, Jamie Lannister in yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like – Charlie is this uh, exquisitely talented gunfighter, and he we we are led to believe that he's sort of like the fastest, most accurate gunfighter in the West. And then eventually, because of this mishap with Herman Kermit Worm's magical formula, uh, he loses his hand. He has to have his hand, his shooting hand, his working hand, as I yeah. think he calls it, amputated. And so you're right. He has this... Uh, this physical transformation foisted upon him, which ultimately completely alters the relationship between Eli and Charlie. Uh, again, and it happens right after the death of the horse tub too. So like you have all these kind of parallels going on. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, again a thing that I don't think would work in a book that wasn't quite as successful. Like if you tried to have the your main character – Lose, his, lose the one part of his body that makes him so successful at his job. In a, in a lesser book, it would come off as as hokey or, or like you overplayed your cards kind of.
1: Well, and here's the, this moment, page 295, after Charlie has injured his hand. Um, and they're realizing basically – I think it's where he, he tells him, like, hey, you know, you're still faster than most men with your left hand. And he replies, most ain't all. Uh, and then he writes that was all that was said on the matter and this was the beginning of our new brotherhood with charlie never again to be the one so far ahead and me following clumsily behind which is not to say the roles were reversed but destroyed afterward and even today we are careful in our relationship as though fearful of upsetting each other in terms of our previous manner of correspondence i cannot say why it vanished suddenly then snuffed as it was like a candle again here is one of the few moments in the book where he says you know like It continues this way today. And there's another moment in the book where he says, like, you know, it wasn't until later I thought about this. Those are very rare. You don't often get a sense as he is telling you this story of what exactly the remove is. Like, is he telling you about the events 20 years after they happen? Is he, you know, what is he hoping to gain by reflecting on it? You know, the way old novels used to always feel obliged to come up with a really convoluted story of why you're even reading this. And, you know, novels don't really do that anymore. And this one doesn't even bother to try to tell you where he is now that he's telling this story. Yeah. It starts in action and it ends, you know, when the telling of it ends.
0: All right. Well, here – this is from Jared McKay and we can talk about this and then maybe uh, talk about the movie. Does the sister's brother's story resolve or does it just end? They are not redeemed per se and when their arc ends, I would argue that they are fundamentally unchanged. Or if they are changed, it's solely because the winds of fate finally turned on them. Now, I think, Ben, that as we just did, you could make like an obvious argument that Charlie Sisters is, uh, you know, changed both physically and psychologically in this book. Uh, and he's obviously never going to be the same. What about Eli Sisters, who is the like kind of the protagonist here, the, the primary uh, point of view character? the guy that you are meant to feel the most emotional sympathy for. Do we find at the end of this book that he has changed or does he just sort of like get what he wanted? I think he has changed. I think that
1: the epiphany that he has basically in the hotel in San Francisco when he realizes, you know, basically my brother has manipulated me into being this hired hitman and I I never really wanted to be that guy. I just had an uncontrollable temper and he was able to uh, shape it the way he wanted. I think that that in itself is him changing. And he does kind of resolve like from that point. Like, And there's actually like a really comedic scene where he tells Charlie, you know, after they've come up with this plan, like, all right. We're going to ingratiate ourselves to Warm and, and Morris and try to join them, basically. We're not going to work for the Commodore anymore. But we can't just stop working for him because they'll send people after us. We've got to go kill him. And then afterwards, you know, and like, and he tells Charlie, like, okay, this is going to be it for me, though. Like, and then there's going to be no more killing for me. And he's like, well, you're forgetting about the Commodore. We still got to kill him. And he's like, okay, but after that. And then Charlie says, well, and then after the Commodore is dead, people will be kind of going at each other uh, over that power vacuum. And he says, fine, this will be the final era. Of killing in my life. Uh, you know, that's humorous and it's really like a funny moment, but it's also a sign of him finally making this break that he's been kind of teasing with himself and then threatening to make and finally being like, that's it. I'm, I'm changing my life.
0: Yeah. Okay. One – actually one additional thing that I do want to talk about before we get into the movie. Let's spend a few minutes at least talking about the relationship between Kermit Warm and Morris because uh, – It's actually one of the things in the movie that I feel like is kind of well rendered and in the book, uh, it comes very late in the novel but ultimately becomes like a a focus of the last part of the book. These two guys who are drawn together uh, essentially by their sophisticated nature, like they're – Warm and Morris are both – uh, repulsed by the violent nature of the sisters brothers world they both aspire to something a little bit more sophisticated and so they bond quickly and become the, this team that goes out into the woods to start a a, a gold mining company uh, what do you make of, of their relationship and, and what do you think Patrick DeWitt is doing like putting these sort of more uh, emotional more sophisticated characters into this book
1: I feel like this is a setup question where you're asking me about my weekend because you want to tell me about your weekend. You have a theory about the relationship between Warm and Morris, do you not?
0: It's not necessarily a theory, but you know, in this in the same way that we ended up talking about the hidden subtext of Tank Abbott's novel. Like I do wonder if we are meant to think that there is something more than friendship going on between Warm and Morris. Uh and I think there's a moment in the book where Morris has already died and Warm is dying. Yes. And Eli goes to talk to Warm and ends up pretending to be Morris. Yeah, uh,
1: Warm is kind of delirious. Yeah, he's delirious.
0: He thinks that Eli is Morris. And so Eli in one of his more like empathetic, compassionate moments pretends to be Morris uh, in order to give Warm this sort of like uh, satisfaction before he dies. Uh, And Warm says something like, I like Eli. He turned out to be a good guy. and Eli pretending to be Morris says he sure did, or whatever, and like,
1: he likes you too,
0: yeah, and then Morris said, Do I detect a note of jealousy, so that and the fact that like they are depicted holding hands as they they die horribly on the bank of this river uh I think are are clues that, that perhaps their partnership is supposed to like be more than just sort of like business and friendship
1: now i had never thought of this before in my first reading of it and you mentioned it to me like a month ago and so i kind of kept an eye out for it as i was rereading it and i also noticed this part this is uh and for one thing i think this is an interesting device where the sisters brothers learn about what's been going on with Warren and morris this whole time by finding or like stealing basically uh the journal uh, from that the hotel woman has been keeping that that Morris left behind in the hotel when they went out to the diggings. And he's telling the story about how he came from being like spying and keeping a watch over warm so that he may be murdered to joining and being his compatriot. Uh, and in the journal, there's one entry who says, Approached by warm today, quite out of the blue, and after having scarcely laid eyes upon him for nearly a week, I was passing through the hotel lobby and he snuck to my side, lifting my arm by the elbow like a gentleman helping a lady over patchy terrain. This surprised me naturally and I broke off with a start. At this, he looked hurt and demanded, are we engaged to be married or aren't we? It was nine o'clock in the morning, but he was drunken. That was plain. Uh, and of course we go great lengths over and over again to paint Morris as the dandy with all his powders and oils and stuff for his hair and skin. And so it does seem like maybe that is an attempt at getting some homosexual subtext into the and, and hinting at that. And I, you know, I still wasn't sure about it until we went and saw the movie and it felt like, okay, if, if it wasn't in the original novel, the movie is at least playing it up. It seemed like it was more overt in the film.
0: Yeah. And in the book, I don't necessarily think that you need to read it that way either. It's, no. it's it's almost more interesting to think of Warm and Morris as two characters that are just like too good to live in that world. They're like, uh Warm is too smart. Morris is like ultimately a little bit too sensitive. And so like they, they try to strike out as, you know, rugged, rugged individualists to sort of, Make this new life for themselves, and it ultimately ultimately doesn't work out. Well, and the, what, what do you think of the way that Warm wins Morris over? Like to start
1: with, to like the way that they go from being like the Commodore's man versus the Commodore's guy, the guy the Commodore once killed, uh, and Warm says that thing to him, like you know how people they pass each other in the street and they smile to each other as they say hello, and then. When they pass, most men, the smile disappears. Their yeah. their friendliness was a lie. But you don't do that. Your smile stays on your face long after you've passed because you genuinely like people and you genuinely like interacting with them. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like that's the moment where it kind of breaks down this barrier between them. And then he hits them like with the business proposition side of it. I need you for this part. Here's what I deliver. Here's how we can work together. Uh, was that believable for you that, that he would – that easily get Morris to abandon his post?
0: In the book, I feel like it's more believable than it is in the movie. And maybe it's just because the book spends a lot of time conditioning us to think that these surprising things are going to happen. But like in the book, uh, warm goes to Morris's room and gives him a demonstration of the, of the formula. And like Morris sees that it works and, uh, ultimately decides to sort of like desert his post and go with warm. And in the book, I feel like it works a lot better in the movie. Again, like, you're only dealing with, like, two hours instead of 325 pages, so they kind of have to cram a lot of this stuff together. But in the movie, it seems less justifiable. And they do this weird scene in the movie where Warm explains to Morris that he dreams of, like, uh, a utopian society. Like, yes. he wants to develop this utopian society in in Texas or whatever. And Morris is kind of like, cool, I'm on board. Let's do it. Like, I'm angry at my dad or whatever. And in the movie, it just comes off, again, as heavy-handed and, like, kind of too easy. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the movie for a minute.
1: Uh, Do Uh, you want to have something to read there?
0: Yeah. So Matthew Ryder writes in, what didn't work about the movie? Because you both seemed pretty, pretty, pretty out on the movie. And John Oakes writes, that's really depressing about the Sisters Brothers movie. I was pretty excited about the casting thinking they get it, but alas, it appears they did not get it.
1: Okay, the casting is one of the few things I liked about
0: it. Yeah, the the casting is really good, and it's one of the things that makes me wonder did the Sisters Brothers movie set out to be something that it ultimately was not able to become for whatever reason. Now, clearly one of the things we know about movies, despite the fact that the Sisters Brothers is is, uh, kind of a low-budget, independent thing, I think, but like movies suffer from like a too-many-cooks in the kitchen situation a lot of the time. So I wonder because the casting is good. Joaquin Phoenix as, uh, Charlie sisters, uh, John C. Riley as Eli sisters and, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, right. Yeah. As, as Morris, like all of that casting is really good. And I would say Jake Gyllenhaal actually does a really good job in the movie. And that makes me wonder, like did, did like the, whoever the, the, like, the visionary behind the Sisters Brothers movie, did they set out to make a book that was more, uh, that stayed truer to the book, the the novel, and ultimately, like, because of studio intervention or whatever, did they end up with this sort of, like, distilled, kind of bland, quasi-offbeat Western that never really finds its stride?
1: Okay, I have some theories about how this came to be. For one thing, you say, uh, you know... A, a small effort uh according to i m d b uh it's considered a box office bomb because it grossed just seven million against its thirty eight million dollar budget uh, also, I learned in kind of reading and researching that supposedly John C. Riley bought the rights to the the book
0: before it was published, okay, and John C. Riley, I have to say. In a vacuum, like on paper, you think John C. Riley is the absolute slam dunk home run pick to play Eli sisters. Yeah. And in the movie, I just didn't think it came through.
1: Yeah. I think that the reason that it didn't come through is because you're missing Eli's narration. And so he just seems like kind of an overly sincere sad sack uh, instead of getting the interiority that really rounds him out. I, I think that that's one of the difficulties of turning – a book like this into a movie. It, for one thing, it's tough to capture the tone. For another thing, the you know antique language that Patrick DeWitt talks about, it doesn't work well on film. Uh, I mean maybe it's that they do, – I don't feel like they committed to it all yeah. the way. There they, were, they
0: didn't go whole hog on it enough right, yeah. to make it work.
1: There were times where like the language slips back into a little more like modern – And it's – I think for people who are just coming to the movie, they're kind of going like, what is this? Why are they talking this way sometimes, not all the times? My main problem with the movie, I think the movie lacked balls. It lacked the balls to just be what it was. Yeah, I agree. It was too concerned with thinking like, well, audiences won't go for a movie where the first half is just guys wandering around having adventures. They just won't do it. They won't sit through it. They'll be like, what the hell is this? They need a more familiar uh, format and structure for the story i also wondered like you got jake gyllenhaal a pretty big star in the role of morris that that other guy i i don't remember his name but he was also with uh co-starred with jake gyllenhaal and nightcrawler uh the guy who plays warm um and he you know it's a little a bit of a departure from the way warm is depicted in the novel where he seems like half insane and half brilliant um and this guy just seems kind of quietly nerdy but Maybe if you go and you tell – you want Jake Gyllenhaal for the movie, maybe it's a tough sell to tell him, okay, you're not in the first two-thirds. You show up uh, in the last third of the movie and that's the first time we ever see you on screen. Because instead of doing the thing where, okay, these guys set out, they have the mission, they run into a lot of crazy zany characters, they have fun adventures, and then finally the the plot kicks in later and they meet these other guys who become major uh, characters in the movie but not until you know the last third of the thing – they try to tell those two stories side by side. Yeah. Sisters Brothers, then Warm and Morris. Sisters Brothers, Warm and Morris. And that didn't work for me at all because on one hand, when you cut out all the zany characters you meet along the way, as you said when we were leaving the movie theater, you cut out a lot of the fun. Yeah. You took a lot of the fun right out of the movie.
0: Like almost sucked almost all of the fun out of the movie. And I think you're right, man. If you... The thing that was so exciting about the prospect of a Sister's Brothers movie – well, exciting and worrying because I think this this is kind of like a, a high dive in terms of degree of difficulty. But like if you had nailed it, if you had, if you had stuck to your guns and made it the thing that I think people who loved the book wanted it to be, it could have been – it could have done all of the the sort of like immersive stuff that a show like Deadwood did but in a completely different way. Like in a completely unique way and it could have been – it had the potential to I think be that good. And then when you see the end product of the movie, it's just kind of like, OK, you made like kind of an underwhelming western. Well, and the thing – the comparison that
1: I thought of is the Coen Brothers version of True Grit. Mm-hmm. Which follows the book almost exactly it makes one uh significant change like in a plot point, and it 's a change for the better it, it it makes it complicates the story in a believable way uh, and otherwise it follows exactly the same format and it similarly has a major actor in a role that doesn 't show up until two thirds of the way through the movie like in that one uh, you know the the main the mission set out in true grit is we're after this guy with the black mark on his face uh and we think we know where he's where he is we're gonna go seek him out and the guy is played by josh brolin i can't remember the name of the guy with the black mark on his face in true grit do you remember no um tom chaney that's it uh sometimes calls himself Chelmsford anyway we 're after this guy, and we don 't see him on screen at all until the last third of the movie where he shows up suddenly and it is another one where you know they got they 're able to get a major actor, maybe it helps to have the Cohen brothers be like, "Hey, trust us on this one, yeah, we got this, but that 's one where they actually had the guts to make the movie that the book was make the story that the book was, and they yeah. nailed it
0: well and it, it could well be that you needed like a uh
1: Filmmaking geniuses, a, a creative
0: force like the Cohen brothers, who not only like have that sort of genius, but like have the clout to get it done. Uh, instead of the French Jacques adiar who directed the Sisters Brothers, and also who, co-wrote the screenplay. According to his IMDb, has a a, a ton of uh, a ton of credits, but you know, this was kind of, I think, like his first attempt at like a big crossover. Uh, American movie anyway it seems obvious now in retrospect but wh- as we were watching the Sisters Brothers movie I did realize like halfway through oh like this shouldn't be a movie like you can't put all of the stuff that makes the Sisters Brothers great into a movie it should be a TV series like you, sh- you, sh- you, it should be like a Netflix or Amazon 10 episode hour long uh, dramedy basically where maybe you would have the the runway to get into all of the stuff that makes the sisters brothers great, and maybe also have like the creative freedom to make it wonderfully weird. Because in the, at the end of the day, I don't think you had enough time in the movie, and you didn't have enough freedom or, or intestinal fortitude, as you say, uh, to to like make it what it should have been. Yeah, you might be right about that, and that was a huge bummer. All right, Jill De Giorgio is back because this is an awesome question. She asks, which movie sucked less? Fletch, or the Sisters Brothers. I
1: think the Sisters Brothers suck slightly less.
0: Yeah, they're. I mean, it's watchable. They're similar situations, right? They're both like very disappointing adaptations of otherwise pretty great books.
1: Except that I feel like in the Sisters Brothers, I understand why it ended up, or I feel like I understand why it ended up being the way it ended up being. With Fletch, I'm mainly just mad at Chevy Chase. Toby Chase fucked it up for me.
0: Well, so Fletch provides an easier outlet for your rage.
1: Yes, I can direct it at one man. All
0: right. Well, we're going to wrap up there. Thanks for joining us for the co-main event podcast book club about the Sisters Brothers, one of our favorite books, a book that at least some of you seemed to enjoy.
1: I will say if you did not enjoy the ending of the, the Sisters Brothers, don't expect to enjoy the ending of other Patrick DeWitt novels. Well, I think he's great, and I'll read anything he puts out. He's not great at endings, and uh, this is probably one of his better ones.
0: Uh, We're going to get back on the horse, no pun intended. We're going to schedule another book club. On a blind eye to the horse. A-S-A-P. As to what the actual book will be, stay tuned for that.
1: Maybe we'll take some suggestions.
0: Yeah, maybe we will take some suggestions. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.